If you would please open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8, you will recall, I hope, that in the previous chapter, Daniel shares a vision that had to do with the coming kingdoms. And Daniel was troubled by what he saw. He says that in chapter 7, verse 15, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. Verse 28 of chapter 7, this is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Well, now he's, he's going to be shown more. Chapter 8, this is God's word. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him, and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came up from the west crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, But at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. And in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Out of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens. And it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him. And the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary, and the host that will be trampled underfoot? He said to me, it will take 
2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Eli calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I am going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath. Because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replaced the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet, he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given to you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. So Daniel has a vision, shares that in chapter 7, and um, I'm sure you know you remember everything about that and understand exactly what all the details mean. I'm being sarcastic. What was the conclusion we said about that. God has already determined the future, and so there's no need for you and I to be afraid. God's in control. Okay? And we talked about the fact that there was a short-term, this is in chapter 7, a short-term fulfillment and a long-term fulfillment. There are still things to come in world history that are prophesied in the book of Daniel. But having had that vision which he records in chapter 7, and being troubled by it. Now he tells us about another vision he had. He said, I'd already had that vision, then I had another vision. This one 
Sounds like he was even more disturbed by it. And not just when he didn't understand what it meant, but after Gabriel was assigned to give him an explanation. Now, some of the things in chapters 7 and 8 are such a precise description of what would follow historically in world history that has already taken place that a lot of so-called scholars don't believe this could possibly have been written while the Jews were in exile in Babylon. Couldn't, couldn't, couldn't happen. I mean, how, how, how would somebody know what's going to happen? Okay. Well, the answer to that question is because God told them. You see, if scholarship, so-called, depends on leaving God out of the equation, that's not scholarship. That's foolishness. Do you remember the story of uh, David and Goliath? The idea that a young shepherd is going to use a slingshot to bring down a giant warrior, it just doesn't make sense. It didn't make sense to the people then. I recently saw on YouTube, that repository of all truly great thought, um, I recently saw on YouTube uh, a popular writer uh, trying to explain what actually happened there um, and, and how, you know, the, the, the secret of David's success was that he was an expert marksman with the slingshot and the giant um, actually had poor vision and um, because of a, uh, a, a cluster of symptoms related to giantism, the reason he was so big was he had a pituitary problem and, and with that pituitary problem, uh, you know, you, you have a tendency toward vision issues. And so he was coming with, you know, set for up close combat, and that's why David was the perfect opponent, because David could, at a distance, pick him off, and, you know, Goliath was no match for that, because he wasn't able to get close. All of his success as a warrior had been based on being so big and having the size advantage in close combat. David, of course, was, was basically a marksman and, uh, and able to take him out. You know what? David would never buy that explanation. The people who were alive at the time didn't buy that explanation. The reason that the Philistines turned and fled in panic and got chased down by the army of Israel was because God was the deciding factor. That's what David said before he went out to fight Goliath, and that's what he said afterward. See, David told Saul, whenever a lion or a bear attacked my father's flock, 
I used my slingshot to take it out. Did I get that right, or did I fudge the details? Oh, that's not what he said? No, that's not what he said. He said, when a lion or a bear attacked my father's flock, I ran, grabbed it by the beard, and ripped it apart. And it was God who enabled me to do that. Well, it must have been. It must have been. If you leave God out of the equation, you're being profoundly foolish. And I'm choosing my words carefully in order to be kind. God is the determining factor in everything. Not in lots of stuff. You know, well, sometimes God gets involved. God's always involved. Where is God? Everywhere. How much power does God have? All. Well, how much information does God have? All. God knows everything. He has all power, and he is everywhere. In him we live and move and have our being. Apart from him, I can do nothing. And so you and I need to realize that the way Daniel got this insight about what would happen with Alexander the Great and his kingdom, when it talks about that goat uh, traveling across the earth without even having to put its feet down, he's talking about the speed with which Alexander conquered the whole area around him. This phenomenal spread of his kingdom, and then in his early 20s, he's dead. And it describes what would follow. Some other folks who would rule, but none of them would have the power of Alexander. And then, and then Rome. That had already been described in chapter 7, now it comes again in chapter 8. And there is going to be a Roman ruler who is going to devastate the worship that the Jews had been able to return to when they rebuilt the temple. And he's going to set up an abomination. It's going to be horrible. It's terrible. But folks, that is all a foreshadowing of what will happen at the end of history. There will be an Antichrist. Right now, there are many Antichrists, the Bible tells us. The spirit of Antichrist is already in the world, and it was 2,000 years ago. But there will be one world ruler who's going to get into power, not by his own power. He will be a supernatural enemy. And he will, for a time, be given success. Well, what are we going to do? We're going to trust God and obey him. Well, do you think we're going to be here for that? I hope not. My parents are not going to be here for that. They're in heaven. Yeah, but I want to know. I mean, are we going to, I've heard that you know, we're going to kind of suddenly disappear. Yes, we, we are. And, and that that'll be before the, you know, the Antichrist sets up his, his uh, one world program. 
I hope so. That's not enough for me. Do you know it? No, I don't. No. I can make an excellent argument for it. I can make an excellent argument for the fact that we're going to have to be here for the first half of the tribulation. I can even make an argument for the fact that we're going to have to be here for the whole tribulation. It depends on which order you put the prophecies in and which one you decide is the key by which you will interpret the others. What do we do? Trust God and obey Him. You and I don't get a vote. When my Bible professor at Montreat College, who was a Christian, wonderful Christian, we eventually became friends, but when I found out that he didn't believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, I, was, I, I thought, how can that possibly be? How can you love God, believe the Bible's true, and not know what it says? So in my immaturity, I said to him, because I didn't have a good argument to counter his, I just said, well, according to your faith, be it unto you which is a ripping a verse out of context and trying to hit somebody with it, which is what a lot of people do. And it's not spiritual. It's ungodly. But that's what I did. In other words, if you want to go through the tribulation, you just go through the tribulation, but I'm getting out of here. Well, that was stupid. The fact of the matter is, Daniel has this whole thing explained to him. And what is the last line of chapter 8? The last line. It was beyond understanding. (laughs) Gabriel just explained it. And Daniel says, I'm sorry, I still don't get it. But what he did get was enough to make him feel sick. I heard a guy years ago, he was at that time the pastor of the fastest growing church in America. I was a young guy and just turned 30, maybe 31. And, uh, and I went to hear this guy speak because I was urged to do so. So I went. And boy, this guy was flashy. Okay? I mean, he was dressed to the nines. He had all the signs of material success and a nice smile. Okay? His teeth were whiter than mine. Mine are not very white. I brushed them this morning, but they're still not very white. But, I mean, he, he was just, you know. He told us, if you want to grow a church... You've got to understand that people are church shopping on Sunday morning. That's when they visit. That's when they try to make up their mind as to whether or not your church is going to be able to meet their needs. It is absolutely vital that you never preach anything controversial on Sunday morning. That's what he said. Never preach anything controversial on Sunday morning. Because you can turn people off. You need to keep all your messages uplifting. So that when they come to your church, they will feel better when they leave. 
I'm thinking, well, you know, if you, if you say stuff that is upsetting, they'll feel better to leave. <laughs> but, I mean, he really, that was his, his doctrine. Nothing about keep it biblical. Nothing about call people to repentance. That's all a turnoff. That's not good marketing. What you have to do is give people TED Talks. You have to give people lessons about how to have a happier life how to have a happier home, how to take better care of yourself, okay? You know, when was the last time you just had some me time? I mean, just, just encourage people, tell them some jokes, build their spirits, make them feel good about themselves, they'll be back. And then, after they've been coming and they get used to it and they begin to get to know you, you can invite them to be in a small group or to come some other time of the week, and then you can give them the more challenging things. But even then, you want to do it in a way that's not going to be a turnoff, okay? You don't want to, you don't want to, you don't want to turn people off. It turns out, according to Scripture, unsafe people are already in the off position. You understand? You say, well, we don't want to turn them off. They're off. They're dead. Like we were. So we don't hate them. But if you've ever seen an EMT working on a person who has no pulse, they carefully unbutton the shirt and, and then they begin to massage the chest, hoping to get the heart started again. Is that, is that right? Is that what you all have saying? No? No? Really? What do they do? They cut that shirt off, and they start pounding on that chest, and somebody over here is working the paddles, getting them ready. Zap! Well, that could be jarring. Yeah! That's the intent. One of my daughters-in-law sent me a, a video from one of those doorbell cameras of a woman who runs up to the front door and wakes up a household that was inside asleep while their house was on fire. Okay? And she came to the door and she pressed the doorbell and waited. You think? No! She beat on the door. She's yelling. She's ringing the bell, hitting the door, calling out. Why? Because the house is on fire. And if you and I are living in a world surrounded by people who are on their way to hell, and we act like, uh, hey, I, I don't want to make you uncomfortable or anything, but you know, just in case you're interested, uh, I, can, I can tell you um, how to uh, reduce the risk uh, that you're going to spend eternity in torment. Would that be a credible witness? Okay? I love the illusionist, you know, Penn and Teller. Which, which one plays mute? That's Teller, right? Could be Penn. 
I think Penn is the big guy. Penn's the big guy. He did a video a while back talking about a guy who came up after one of his presentations and tried to share the gospel with him. And he says, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in this stuff. But he said, that man did the only thing that makes sense if you believe that Christianity is true. He said, how cruel would you have to be to believe that people who don't share your faith are going to hell and not tell them? He said, I appreciate that guy coming and talking to me. He said, I'm still not a believer. But he said, but that guy was doing the only thing that makes sense for somebody who believes. Are we doing that? Or are we still hoping to fit in, pass, keep everybody comfortable? Mr. Jordan and I had the opportunity to go visit a person in the hospital who, thank God, is a believer, but who seems very close to the door of eternity. And I almost told Mr. Jordan this story yesterday, but I didn't, so I'll tell it to him today, and the rest of you can listen. It's a story that my brother, who was a doctor, told years ago about a doctor at Massachusetts General Hospital who was taking his Harvard Medical School students on rounds at Mass General, and they went over into a wing of the hospital, I think called the Phillips House, where all the rooms are private, and the waiting areas are oak-paneled with bookcases and overstuffed leather chairs and oriental rugs on the floor. It's just a lovely place. And um, it, it's not like an ICU, okay? But people are there just needing medical care, and in some cases their condition is not very serious, and in other cases they're just on the way out. And so the people there have money, they have influence, etc. and he's making his rounds with his med students, and they come into a room, and there's a patient in the bed who is obviously dead. You can tell. The patient is dead, and the private duty nurse is seated in a chair next to the bed, knitting. And the doctor was surprised that she didn't seem at all concerned about the fact that her patient had died. So he took the clipboard from the end of the bed to look and see when was the last time this guy had vitals checked, you know, like pulse, respiration, blood pressure, that kind of thing. And according to the clipboard, the vitals had been recently recorded. as if he was still alive. But you could look at him and tell he wasn't. So the doctor did something unconventional. He took the patient by the toes, which were together, 
took him by the toes and lifted his body up by the feet. And it came up stiff as a board. Rigor mortis had set in. This guy had been dead for a while. And he let go of the patient's feet, didn't hurt the patient at all. The patient was dead. Body slams back down on the bed and he looks at the nurse. And the nurse bursts into tears. She says, oh, I'm so sorry. He said, what are these vitals on the chart? She said, well, he was having such a a difficult time. And and around two o'clock in the morning, he finally settled down and and I thought, good, he's able to sleep. So I didn't want to disturb him uh, by checking his vitals. So I just made some up and wrote them on the chart. That's not good medicine. Didn't help the patient. He was dead. You understand? Now, why are you telling that story? Because the guy with the fast-growing church, all he was doing was trying to keep the corpses comfortable. That's all he was concerned about. Let's don't disturb them. Let's don't do something that might upset them. Let's don't check to see if there's a pulse. Let's don't check to see how many breaths per minute. Let's just make sure they're comfortable. What does this have to do with Daniel? It has everything to do with Daniel. God showed him a vision of the future that was so upsetting to him that he didn't go out feeling better. Oh, thank you, Gabriel. I got it now. That's good. Three pointers from that. No. Listen. Verse 27. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. So what's the takeaway? Even when God tells us more than we may want to know, his word is still true. Do you ever find anything in the Bible and you say, oh, I don't much like that? I do. I find things in there and I'm like, I guess I need to change. Well, it's still true even if I don't like it. We've got churches and pastors and supposedly Christian families that have decided that God doesn't really mean what he says in his word because that would, that would not fit well in today's world. Okay? It's just, you know, that's going to be very upsetting. It's going to bring division in my family. I heard a study group from a Baptist church Tell the full deacon body, we have studied the question of having elders and deacons as opposed to just deacons. And we have concluded, A, it is biblical to have elders and deacons. That's the biblical pattern. A plurality of elders. Secondly, it is strongly recognized throughout Baptist history. It's not like something that's, you know, well, it may be biblical, but it's not Baptist. Actually, a lot of Baptists seek to be biblical. 
Not all, but many. We've also concluded that churches that are doing this, having elders and deacons, actually do very well. And a classic example is that church over there. But we are recommending that we not do that at our church. And the reason is we feel it would be divisive. There would be people upset by it. And our job is to preserve the unity of the church. Okay, I had a tumor in my neck when I was in my 30s. And the doctors said it needed to come out. I got a second opinion. Needs to come out right away. And I said, I understand what you're saying is this is not the way it's supposed to be, but I feel my job is to preserve the unity of my body. Okay? So we're not going to fix it. We're just going to leave it in there. You think? No. I said, okay, let's get it out. And the only mistake I made was not having that surgery done several years earlier when it would have been less complicated and less risky. Now, mercifully, it was not cancer. But I'll tell you something. There are a whole lot of folks who don't want to do anything that's going to upset anybody. Okay? Yeah, I know that's right, but we're not going to go there. Well, I know that's what the Bible says, but I, I just I, I, I can't accept that. I think times have changed. The country is going to hell in a handbasket. That's not true. The country is going to hell on a rocket ship. Okay? Things are getting so bad, so fast, and the responsibility of those of us who know the Lord is not to stop the rocket. Our responsibility is to say, hey, you don't have to go there. Repent. Repent. Turn. Now, there's an opportunity. There's hope. Daniel was appalled by the vision. And he still didn't understand it all, so I don't feel badly that I don't understand it all. But I know this. God's word is true. And I'll tell you this about end-time prophecy. As it is fulfilled, everybody's going to have to admit it's exactly what God said. That is exactly what God said. Now I see it. Okay? When Jesus died and then conquered death, he met with his disciples afterwards and he said, you guys are really slow to believe what the scriptures say. This had to happen this way in order to fulfill the scriptures. And then he opened their minds so that they understood the scriptures. And once you see it, it's like, oh, well, of course. There is stuff about the future that has already told us in God's word. I'm not sure if it's going to work out exactly like this, or it's going to be exactly like this, or it's going to be exactly like this, but I'll guarantee you this, it's going to be exactly like it is in the word. And as it happens, we're going to say, that's exactly what God said. But sometimes, when you're studying what God says, 
It doesn't make you feel cheery. I just love that. No, actually, you may find it distressing. But that's not a reason not to believe it. God's word is true. All of it. And you and I had better study it and learn it and obey it. Because God doesn't change. And his word does not change. And like it or not, it's true. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the fact that your word is true. And I pray that you would deliver us from ever being a part of a cotton candy diet church. Grant that our lives would embody your truth and that our goal would be to faithfully follow you and thereby offer an alternative to people who are going the wrong way. And we'll be careful to give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.